Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. We need the Word of God this morning. We always need the Word of God. Before we read that passage, I'd like to um, read something I wrote this morning in my journal, just thinking about this uh, transition time. In terms of temporary commitments in this life, I can only think of one that has been more, more joyful and more sobering than stepping into the full-time role as this church's pastor. I am so thankful to God. Maybe the second most joyful, second most sobering, temporary thing in this life that God has graced my family with and it's an honor to be able to preach God's word to you. Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 11. Before I read that, I guess we're in a, a, a season right now where, um, Lord willing, I will full-time start out, uh, on September 30th, and in a couple weeks we're going to start going through the book of Titus. Uh, until that time, we are selecting passages that will be edifying for you, we pray, and um, Next week, Peter Conrad is going to share the word. Last week, uh, Bert preached about distractions. Um, and this week, I want to discuss fear and, the, word of, and, and the, the way the word of God can transform us. So Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11 Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh, all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice cries, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice in strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not, say, say to the cities of Judah, 
Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That's the word of the Lord and let's pray asking God for help. God, all flesh is grass but we trust that your word endures forever. It stands like a rock. We look to you to be our peace in any situation in life. May we look to you. And God, I ask that you would make your word clear. May it shine forth. May it be helpful, edifying for this people. May we leave confident in you, not afraid. And it will only happen, though, God, by your power, through your spirit. So we ask you for help. I ask that you would give me the words to say, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Fear is a powerful feeling, especially when it's connected with truth, when it's connected to truth. This is a silly example, but there's a character in the original Star Wars film, who's known for two things, being very intelligent and very fearful. Does anyone know who I'm talking about? His character once stated, the possibility of navigating an asteroid field is approximately 3,720 to one. Any ideas? C-3PO, that gold android. He's known for being very smart, very intelligent, but he's even more well-known for being afraid and running away with his weird stride. Though this passage is filled to the brim with confident and hopeful promises of God's comfort and salvation, it's got this one skeptical Pessimistic, fearful, CP3O-like statement in verses 6 through 7. All flesh is grass. Surely all the people are grass. It's a very C3PO kind of statement. It's well-informed and it's full of fear. It's well-informed and it's full of fear. All flesh is grass. That singular statement, it's like a, a pebble in your shoe. It's nagging, it's doubting, it's fear-filling, and it seeks to undermine the great salvation which God is proclaiming to his people in Isaiah chapter 40. But this, this kind of fear isn't new to this passage, it's not new to Isaiah. Before Isaiah 40 was written, the prophet Isaiah, he received a vision from God commissioning him to speak to his people, it was in the year that King Uzziah died, it was about 740 BC, Isaiah saw the Lord, and he was seated on a throne, high and lifted up, his train filled the temple, and above the Lord there were heavenly creatures uh, with six wings, 
And they were calling to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when Isaiah saw that, when he witnessed that, he said, woe, woe, woe is me. I am lost. And the reason he said he was lost is he says, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among the people of unclean lips and I'm a sinner and I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So when he saw the holiness of God, he was terrified. I'm doomed, I'm lost, I've seen the Lord. He had no confidence, no boldness. He had a C-3PO moment, well-informed and full of fear. Surely we are but grass in the presence of God. It's appropriate, it was appropriate for Isaiah to feel that way, to feel unworthy, because he, like you and me, was a sinner. Every human being is a sinner. Sin, it's the ultimate rejection of God and his commands. It's described in chapter one, verse four, this way, when it's spoken by God about Israel, his people, all sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One. They are utterly estranged. That's what sin is. As sinners, we're like sheep gone astray. We have turned to our own way. The God and Father of all created us to worship him, but we have despised him. We have dealt corruptly. We have forsaken the Lord. We are estranged from God. So if we're honest about ourselves and about our sin, and if we really see how holy God is, then the struggle deep down in your guts has to be how how could God's presence not mean my instant destruction? When we see those two things, we ourselves become well-informed and full of fear, like C-3PO. When we consider the whole, uh, our sin in comparison to the holiness of God, it's only a miracle of grace then that this passage exists. Isaiah 40, 1 through 11, is God's declaration of comfort and salvation. Though God's people sinned against him, turned away from him, even though they would suffer a terrible exile, a terrible 70-year-long exile for their sin, God is proclaiming a future day of comfort for his people, a coming salvation. His glory will be seen, not just by them, but by all flesh. All flesh will see his glory. And God is going to tenderly carry them in his bosom and gently lead them. The burden before us is to answer from this passage, how, how can God comfort a people who have sinned against him? How can God visit a people and not destroy them with his presence? How can God tenderly care for his creation who are so prone, so prone to sin against him? How can God's salvation come even after we consider that all flesh, all flesh is grass? The answer, which you can see in the passage, is that 
God offers salvation by grace alone. He does not consider your human work in order to save you. You are not saved by your merits, but by his pure, unadulterated grace. The passage is a series of exchanges between God and humanity. And it's difficult to navigate because there aren't, other than verse 1, you don't have any attributed um, markers. There's no, then Isaiah said, then God said, then Isaiah said, then God said. You have to look at the context to see the, the nature of the exchanges. But it's an exchange between God or God's people or God's uh, from, from heaven Positive statements of salvation and care, along with this one negative statement of doubt. So in verses 1 through 6a, and then continued on in 9 through 11, God is promising comfort and salvation, and a salvation that ultimately will be seen by all flesh. And then in 6b through 7, if you're looking in your Bibles there, you see a pessimistic, a, a, a doubting CP3, C3PO-like reply of doubt and fear, responded by verse 8, the word of God stands forever. Let's walk through this passage and let's look at it in, or, in order to see that God saves by grace alone. We may be well-informed but let's not be filled with fear. Let's be filled with hope and joy. So first, God has determined to comfort his people. The structure of the passage shows us that in this, in this first statement, starting in verses one and two, God is speaking words of comfort. God was once a warring host against his people. Their sin had come before him. However, that time was coming to an end. It would come to an end. After their punishment was, was doled out by God, God was going to cease his opposition and there would be a time of peace. Similarly, there was a debt that needed to be paid. The promised exile itself was God's way of having Israel pardon for her iniquities. They were the afflicted ones. They were the condemned ones. They were the ones who would pay for their sin with exile. Israel was going to be punished for her sin, for fleeing the Lord. For God's people, the exile was the placement of her own hand on her neck. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, you would bring a lamb or a, a pure sacrifice. And you were a sinner, and in order for that sin to be paid, you brought the lamb, you put your hand on the neck, and that, the sin was transferred. It was covered by that sacrifice. Israel's hand was on her own neck during the exile. The punishment was being paid through exile. His judgment came upon her in full. And then the final step in verse two, that statement of comfort God connected to the previous is he's affirming that their sins, the sins of the people that they received were full. He received full, 
They receive full judgment from God. They have received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's done. That's what God's saying. After this time, this punishment, it's done. Peace. Peace is proclaimed to his people. Now, God speaks tenderly, like a a tender mother to a daughter, like a father to a son, like a shepherd caring for sheep, not letting them be lost, gathering them back in. He speaks literally to the heart of the people with gentleness. His wrath is not on them. He is not opposing them any longer. You can see the tenderness in verses 11 in the way that God is going to come. Tender enough to care, caring like a shepherd, gathering the flock, the lambs in his arms, carrying them in his bosom, gently leading those who are with young. If you are about to go under the wrath of of God, the thought would be, how? How? Could he be so kind after I've been so sinful? We know God's not against his people anymore because this message of comfort has a serious call, some contents that show the way that God is coming. Look at verses three through five. We see another unattributed voice speak. Um, However, It's, again, from heaven, and it's telling us the way that God is going to comfort his people. In verses 3 through 5, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley lifted up, so a highway is going to be plain. Like through the wilderness, valleys lifted, mountains lowered, highway for God to come back to his people and bring salvation. So verses three through five describe for us God's plan to come and be with his people. I'm gonna be with you. It's important to know in, in the biblical scheme that salvation is only possible if God visits his people. Salvation doesn't come if God isn't there. Salvation is only possible if God visits his people. Sometimes he visits in judgment, But God's presence is required for salvation to be possible. If God doesn't come to your aid, you don't really get salvation. You see an example of this all throughout the Bible in uh, Exodus when Israel turns from God and they begin worshiping a golden calf. What does God tell Moses? You keep going. I'm not going with you. I won't be with you anymore. To which Moses pleads, if you don't come with us, if you don't come with us, how will the nations of the earth know that we are on your side? How will, how will we be distinct from everyone else? Moses knew, everyone knew, knows that God's presence must be there for salvation to happen. And so now in this fulfillment of the promises being spoken to a people who are about to go under God's wrath, He's, he's going to come back. And his presence isn't going to mean their destruction. His presence is going to be their salvation. They would not say, 
like Isaiah did when he saw the Lord. Woe is me. They're not going to have to say that. They're going to see the glory of the Lord and it will be joyous. It'll be a joyous act of salvation. The call then continues in verse 6 from heaven to us, to, to God's people, and the call is simply to cry. Cry. Cry out. Heaven is calling. God is calling his people to cry out and declare that God is coming. He is going to comfort his people. And here we get the prophet's response, the C3PO-like inquiry, well-informed, full of fear. Verses six through seven give us that seemingly clear problem. Simply put, he's asking, I think, what will prevent God's judgment from happening all over again? What's gonna be the guarantee? Is the guarantee, is it placed on me? You say comfort now. What will happen the next time I turn away from God? What about the next failure? Or the next? The human factor. The human factor is the one glaring element that God seems to be forgetting. What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty or its faithfulness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. You've got to be missing something, God. You forgot to add the human factor to your equation of salvation. God says that all flesh will see his glory. That's what it says at the end of verse five, right? All flesh will see it. But all flesh is grass. All flesh is grass. That word for beauty, as I mentioned, it's, it's chesed. It's describing uh, loyalty or faithfulness. A better understanding would be that, that flesh is as fading as grass and as loyal as flowers. Flowers fade. Yep, they bloom. Beautiful colors. Come November, they're a pile of mangled stems. They don't last. All flesh is faithless and fading. When the breath of God blows on the fields, everything withers. How much more will I fail when his glory comes and blows on me? How much more will God destroy me, how it destroy you, when he comes in glory. All flesh is like grass. Isaiah saw it. In his frailty, when he had the vision of God's presence, woe is me, certainly everyone 
will feel just as condemned. How can I find comfort knowing that I am flawed? How can I see God's coming salvation as good knowing I am weak? How can I proclaim? How can I cry out? How can I cry out to others saying, God is coming, knowing that they are just as unfaithful as I am? All flesh is grass. Look at me, God. You missed something. I am flesh. I am flawed. Flawed people don't get God's comfort. Flawed people don't get God's salvation. They sin and they reject God and they get judgment. That's what flawed people get. He sent it before. It's going to come again at the next failure. That the doubt, fear, nagging, right? Pebble in your shoe. There might be someone here unable to believe that God could save you. I get Jesus, yeah, but, but, but you don't know what I have done. When you think about how sinful you are, you're well-informed, you are full of fear. Praise God that he doesn't leave our doubts unanswered. He always gets the final word, and that's what verse 8 is. It's striking. The grass withers, so this is a reply from heaven, I, I believe. The grass withers just like people do. The flower fades just like human loyalty fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The first thing you need to see in verse eight is that God doesn't deny his, how, how frail his people are. The passage does not say, you're not grass. Here's the good news, you're not grass. You are a diamond. It doesn't say that. It does not say that. When the breath of God blows on you, you're gonna stand firm. You are pure, you are enough. The passage does not say that you are enough. But that is a message today, and it is being called out to you, and it's in the name of Jesus, and it's seeking to build your self-confidence, but it's not building your confidence in God. Authentic living is found in self-trust, trust in yourself. Find strength within yourself, peace within yourself. It says to you, without Christ, or maybe with Christ on the side, you are enough. You are enough. Look within. Look within and you will find that you are not grass. But the word in verse eight is not that you're not grass. It never says that you're enough. God's word never says on your own, you're enough. Never says that. What does it say? Verse eight says, it doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter what you are. God's word is all that matters. Yes, you're grass. You wither, you die, you are unfaithful like a fading flower. It is well informed. 
to speak about yourself this way. You along with all of humanity, all of us, are unable to stay faithful to God. In comparison with that holy, eternal God, you're like grass. But God is a rock. God is a rock. God's word stands forever. God is not speaking tenderly to you by placing the guarantee of your comfort and your salvation on the shoulders of your abilities. His salvation, his comfort, if it is resting on you, you would have room to despair, room to be afraid. If God's salvation rests on you, you're doomed. You would have the right to say, I'm flesh, flesh fades, therefore God's message of salvation, that is not good news, that is not good news to me. But God's salvation rests on one thing, himself, his word. He rests his salvation on his own shoulders to carry out your salvation. Many of you are aware that verses three through five, it's a familiar passage in the New Testament. It's actually a prophecy that was fulfilled um, when John the Baptist, at the beginning of Mark, if you wanna look afterwards, see it in Mark, it's fulfilling John the Baptist who was preparing the way for the Lord. He was preparing the way for the Lord. And Mark tells us that John, as he's preparing for the, the way for the Lord, presents Jesus as the one who is he who he's preparing the way for Jesus is prepare the way for the Lord who is John proclaiming Jesus Jesus is the one who is the answer the one who is coming who John who this prophet testified about Jesus is the word He's called the word in John 1. He's the word made flesh. He came in a form that would not smite us. He came in human form. Could see him and not be instantly evaporated. And he exists as one who does not fail. Fully God. Fully man. Fully God. Truly man. Truly God. He is that fulfillment of this prophecy, the fulfillment that God's word will stand forever. Though we are grass, Jesus is a rock. Though we are unfaithful, Jesus remained faithful unto death. Later on, a prophecy about Christ will be fulfilled. He bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was pierced for our unfaithfulness, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and he heals with his wounds. God in Christ Jesus is the guarantee that his word of salvation will not fail you. Isn't that sweet? If you're weary this morning, if you're focusing on you, your failures, your unfaithfulness, if you're despairing, if you're convinced that God cannot save you, if you're basing your hope on your ability to earn God's love, 
Look to Jesus. Look to the cross of Christ. God does not base his salvation upon your ability. He put the burden upon himself. I'm gonna pray in a moment, but I want you to think about, there's a quote from Isaiah, or uh, Isaac Watts. uh, It's from a song called, Alas, and Did My Savior Bleed? It was written in the 1700s, and I think they should be helpful as as we pray and ponder. May we not be filled with fear, but filled with hope, because God has remained faithful in Christ. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head, his head, for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done, he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Father, we are overwhelmed by the work of Christ. When we consider our failures and our sin, there is only one place to turn to. It is to your unfailing faithfulness. In Christ, we have all the hope in the world. Hope to live a life of obedience and faith to you. We thank you for Christ and what he did. May we walk, walk out of here killing faith or killing fear with, with the, the confidence that you give from your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.